So I said, hey, can you send this off to the FBI, the JRIC, the Joint uh, Regional Intelligence Center, and uh, see if they can get this uh, translated and let us know if, if this is something we need to be concerned about. And so he takes it and I uh, give it to him. And, and it's a couple of days later. And I'm like, Hey, is it, have you got anything back yet? He goes, no, let me, let me call him and see what's going on. So he, uh, he finds out, they call him and they say, yeah, it's uh it's from, it's a snippet from an ISIL website. And it rough, roughly translated, it says danger, danger, beware, beware. So I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, but they say, yeah, it's nothing to be worried about. Don't worry about it. So like, all right. So I, so I said, hey, Boy's send famous our, last words, right? Yeah. So I said, hey, send one of our TLO officers down there, have them take a report, and um, so we can just document the fact that and what we did on this and stuff like that. So flash forward several days, I can't remember exactly how many days it is, but we uh, annually we would post we would host um, you know some Chinese police officers. Usually about thirty of them would come to uh, our station, and we'd tell them about you know policing in you know the United States and San Bernardino and stuff like that. So we're in that, and uh, we're on a break, and I go walking down to my office, and uh, I'm sitting in my office doing something, and one of my captains walks in. He says, hey, there's some uh, shots heard down in, in the south side of the city. Now, when I say that San Bernardino earlier is a very busy city, um, there is the south end of the city, which is like our commercial area, and it's nicer, and you really don't ever have any homicides or shootings or anything like that down there. So it's kind of odd that we're having any shots heard down there. And I'm like, okay, you know, it's enough shootings aren't new, but that's kind of a, an area that, you know, doesn't happen, but it didn't really raise any alarms, you know? And then literally a minute later, I'm walking down the hallway and the watch commander comes over the intercom and says, Hey, we have an active shooter down at the IRC. Well, of course, that's not something that we hear every day. So I grabbed that captain. And I said, Hey, let's, let's go down and let's see what's going on. And uh, as I'm driving down there, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is, this is where we had that phone call or that voicemail message from earlier. And I'm mm-hmm. like, crap. And I'm calling the sergeant and say, hey, what did, what did we find out when the officer went down there? And he's like, I don't know. Let me, let me find out. So we get down there and I'm thinking, man, I hope I, I cross all the T's and dotted all the I's on this and that we did everything that we were supposed to. And uh, I get down there. We, we get down there relatively quickly. Um, and I don't hear any shots being fired. Um, there's very few officers down there still yet. Our chief is in the uh, a meeting at City Hall. We we can't get a hold of him, and we leave some voicemail messages. And we get down there, and I go walking around um, to the back of the building. It's a large complex, and it, it was always some, a big building. We didn't really know what it was, but we thought it was some kind of governmental um, facility. And basically, what the IRC is, it's called the Inland Regional Center, and it's a it's a nonprofit. And what they do is they uh, take care of uh, kids who have developmentally dis. Uh, developmentally disabled. So their parents come there, they give them training on how to help their kids and stuff like that. So that's what kind of facility it is. And I didn't know that until later, but we get down there. I walk around to the back and I see our homicide sergeant back there. And I see a couple people laying there that have been you know, wounded and stuff like that. And, uh, and I walk in to the, to the room and the, the alarms are going off. You know, obviously it's, it's the actual crime scene. And I come walking out and you know, to be honest with you, I'd been to so many homicide scenes that, yes, this was a large number, but at the end of the day, it's just a homicide scene in, in my mind. And uh, we're trying to secure the scene. We've got people already searching the building to see what's going on, where the suspects are, if they're still there. And we obviously didn't know that. But honestly, it didn't, um, you know, nothing to get excited about. Um, honestly, our cops knew what to do because they've been to, you know, some of them hundreds of homicide scenes. It's just a larger number of victims. Mm-hmm. And so 
that's going on. And uh, then I finally get a hold of the sergeant and I say, hey, what happened? He goes, well, the, then the officer showed up. He says, hey, I, I played phone tag with that lady. I never got the report taken. <laughs> so I was like, crap, you know, we didn't, uh, hopefully we didn't miss something on this. Well, as much as I was crapping, the people down at JRIC that uh, actually had the information that we gave them and processed it, uh, you know, I think they had diarrhea down there because they're wondering if they had done everything they were supposed to. And so at that time, they started working. I've talked to some people down there after the fact, and they said they started working it big time. And uh, what I was told later um, was it had no connection to the IRC. It was coincidental, and it was one of the kids, an, an autistic kid that goes there that actually left the recording. So no connection but obviously, it's kind of coincidental uh, that coincidental. I mean, yeah, because yeah. because you know that'll spin conspir- conspiracy conspiracy yeah. theorists out. Say, oh no, you got warning of it. You were told about it. You guys ignored it. But it's like, yeah. um, and that's not well known. I mean, I've spoken all over the country about the incident, and I and I briefed different police departments on that. But that's not something that's very well known that that phone call came in, um, that re- mm-hmm. or not that phone call, but a re- phone call with the recording, and uh, but that that did happen. But I was told out the fact. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're kind of fast forwarding, but did they get a ch- even though he's autistic, did they get a chance to interview? Uh, the you know, kid? that was something that uh, uh, the FBI followed up on and not us. Um, and they assured us it was not connected to the actual shooting. Well, let's go back and talk about this because once you get this, once you get, and, and this is, had you guys done much active shooter training at that point? I yeah, know it's we, very, it's yep. very, it was something that, uh, and I had participated as both the uh, instructor at some points this, to a limited extent, but also I'd gone through active shooter training. So we'd actually trained on that quite a few times. I mean, they would gone through it uh, pretty regularly. It'd become something that, you know, I remember I was a cop when Columbine happened and, uh, you know, from that, obviously the genesis to, to how we evolved and, and how we responded to those types of events. And we were pretty well-versed on, on, you know, instructing our officers on what to do on an active shooter in- incident. But but in this event, though, by the time you got down there, the shooting was over, right? I mean, by the time the first cops got on scene, the, sh- was the, sh- the shooting was done, the suspects were gone? Yeah, so when the officers got there, that uh, unbeknownst to them, the suspects had already left. And, uh, but the suspects had uh, driven by while the, suspects, while the officers were there. So basically what happened is that there's a lot, you know, I have a lot of, you know, information about how it all transpired but the uh, the suspect himself the male he had wanted to commit a mass murder uh for several years um and he had you know radicalized himself um over a number of years he had had another friend that he had himself radicalized and they had wanted to do um a terrorist attack they had actually had a bunch of different scenarios that they wanted to do at one point they wanted to uh to shoot somebody on the 91 freeway, which is a very, very busy freeway between the nine, between the Inland Empire and Orange County, create a traffic jam, which they didn't need to do that. Anyway, there's just nonstop traffic and then walk amongst the cars that are stuck in traffic and execute people as they're walking down. And that we won't name the gentleman, but that the one you're talking about has the Hispanic name, correct? Yes. Yes. And, um, and so that, that never happened. And then they had an idea to go into, uh, to place some bombs inside of a, um, community college and then explode those bombs remotely. And then as people ran out that they would shoot the people. Well, 
what happened is that there was a, uh, I can't remember at the moment the name of the operation, but the FBI had taken down some people in the in, um, Inland Empire that were planning to go, I think, to Afghanistan. Um, they were radicalized, and the FBI took them down and, uh, and arrested them all, and it was in our region, and so it spooked these guys. And so they decided, hey, we better go underground for a little while, and uh, hopefully the FBI is not on to us. But they hadn't had a profile online at all. So... Um, and over that time, the other person that you, t- that you mentioned kind of drifted away and decided he didn't want to be involved in that. Um, but the main suspect still wanted to. So he had met online this woman who was living in Saudi Arabia, and uh, she's of Pakistani descent as well. She was radicalized, and that was kind of an attraction for him to her. And then he traveled over there, and uh, he brought her back as basically a 90-day fiancé. And uh, I don't know if... No, no one knows if they had decided at that time to do a terrorist attack or they planned to do it after they got married and came over here and when the evolution of when that um, planning took place to do that. But they came over here and, and you know, they had actually had a kid, had a couple months old by the time of the terrorist attack. And what's odd is that, you know, he he's from here. He's, he's an American. His parents are naturalized citizens. But um, he actually worked for the county. And his coworkers had hosted baby shower for him and his wife um, not too long before this incident happened. You know, so he didn't have a bad relationship with his coworkers. How far? How far into the incident did you get the identities of the suspects? It was a good. Well, what's interesting is that early on we had a name, and the interesting thing is that both suspects were wearing clothes that uh, that kind of kind of concealed their identity. But one of the victims who was wounded or, or um, not, I can't remember specifically, um, was talking to the investigators. And he says, you know what? He says, um, I can't say for certainty, but I think one of the shooters is our coworker. And he named him. And, and he goes, but I can't say with certainty because his face was covered. And they say, why do you say that? He says, well, because when he walked in, the way he carried himself, I could tell it was him. And he said that... Uh, and at first, I thought that maybe it was some sort of active shooter training. Um, and I thought, how stupid is this to do it here without telling us that we're going to do it? And how what bad form to use the only employee that's a Muslim as the role player? And uh, so they thought it was. And then he said, obviously, then when the shooting started taking place and he knew it wasn't a drill, that uh, that it was actually a, a real event. You know, you brought up something that's interesting, and that's been done before. A lot of people don't realize you're almost as identifiable from the way you walk as from your facial features. People mm-hmm. can look at your gait, you know, the way you do things, your mannerisms, and say, "Yeah, it's, it's got." It's like you know, um, uh, you if you watch Tom Brady walk or Aaron Rodgers walking you know, on, you could you could you could mask them, but you could say by the way they walked, you know who they are. I mean, obviously right. some famous stuff, and so that was interesting. Is that they attempted to conceal their identities, but they were still identified. Um, and the, the second suspect who was his wife was initially identified as a, as another male um, by witnesses and stuff like that. They didn't, it was a female, but you know, we had that name early on. The problem is, is that the suspect had, I think three or four brothers and his dad, they all had the same names. Um, they might have, it's almost like the, like the uh, George Foreman thing where they had George Foreman, one, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> so mm-hmm. kind of had that. So, and one of his brothers in particular was in the U S military, but also had, had 
been a subject of an investigation by, I think, by the FBI or something for some suspicious activity. So they're obviously focusing on some of that, trying to track them down. And so they're working through who are all these people, where are they at, where are they located, and trying to track that down. Uh, but they had those names relatively early, at least for one of the suspects. So what's the response like once you start doing this? I mean, this is like, are you are you calling people in from uh, days off or uh, the next shift in early? You know, what's the response like from the city standpoint? You know, from the city standpoint, you know, most of our officers, a lot of the officers working at that time, especially, you know, we have maybe 40 detectives working. So everybody heads down there because, you know, it's all hands on deck. But that being said, we're a very big city, very busy city. So there's a lot of things, even other shootings, you know, during the middle of this, we had another homicide that happened in the city unrelated to this. So there's other things that we have to take care of in the city. So while we're having um, officers call in and they're saying, hey, do I need to come in? Do I need to come in and help out? We're like, no, you work swing shift, come in at swing shift because we're going to need you to work swing shift, you know, and we still have a city to police outside of this. And so, you know, and there's some people just came in and then, you know, just kind of reassigned them and did whatever we needed to do. But the city response, you know, we managed that pretty well. Um, a lot of people have are accustomed to being a busy city and, and some people were calling the watch commander. Um, but for the most part, those people that weren't at work that were scheduled to come in later, we told them come in at your next shift. But it was a, it turned from a four day work week for people to a seven day work week, but they were working their regular shift. Mm-hmm. But the response from other agencies, we never officially, not even once, um, requested mutual aid. Um, you know, the interesting thing about San Bernardino is that we're so busy um, that all the cities on our periphery listen to our radio traffic. Because if we have a shooting or a robbery, the suspects might be heading out of their chances are, yeah, yeah, yeah they're going to be they're going to be crossing into the jurisdiction. Yep. So they listen to what's going on. So they all just proactively responded themselves. Which goes back to what we were talking about um, with the Dorner shooting. Uh, the stuff there is that um, you got these people showing up from all over the place. Command and control, you know, and coordination becomes a huge issue. But, but, but this, but this is going on. And so now you're starting to get a name. How do you? What starts happening? When does? When do things like uh, the federal agencies, like FBI or ATF, when does this start becoming involved? Because you know we're obviously people who know about this, this does end up in a shootout. It does end up, you know, uh, they do, you get, you do end up identifying them, but how's the process of getting to that point? You know, we, we called the, uh, the officer that, uh, was assigned to take the initial report that I talked about the phone call. Um, he worked a lot with the FBI and, uh, you know, doing some different terrorist stuff. So he made a phone call very, very quickly to the LA office, which is really, if, if there's no traffic, it's less than an hour drive or maybe about an hour from West LA to San Bernardino. And the FBI said it was the soonest they've ever received a call from a local jurisdiction. And they responded out uh, right away to San Bernardino. And they came out with quite a bit of resources. Um, I think they had two, two of their SWAT teams respond. At one time, we probably had about, um, from various jurisdictions, probably about six or seven SWAT teams on site at the location. Wow. Now, when I say that you talk about the overwhelming response, um, not only did I see... Um, People from our local agencies, there are people from agencies an hour's drive away that just showed up. And what's, what's funny is I'm in uniform that day and I wear three stars and I see these people coming up and I'm, we're trying to get control and set up a perimeter, but everybody that's responding, of course, 
what do you think they want to do? They're going to get inside the building. They're going to go, you know, kill the suspects and they don't want to set up the perimeter. They don't, that's, that's not what their role is, but really because our officers were the first ones there, they're the ones that got sucked in the building to do the searches very quickly. And we really needed to rely on the other agencies um, responding to secure the perimeter. At one, the perimeter was so big that it took about 60 officers alone to secure it adequately. Yeah. But, but you know, at the end of the day though, too, it's kind of like it's, Guys, that's foolish to think that you're from another agency. You've got no jurisdiction here other than you know mutual aid. You think there, you think San Bernardino is going to allow you to come into the building and be the primaries, you know, on this stuff? It's almost like that's one of the good things, but bad things about cops. Right. Everybody wants to be involved in the action, which you know too. It's it's not just the action, but securing the perimeter, defending people. You don't want to have a. Here's the importance of securing the perimeter. The two fucking suspects drove by while this shit was going on. How do we know that they didn't have a plan to say, hey, let's lean a um, a semi-automatic out the window or toss a couple pipe bombs and start taking out cops who don't suspect this to happen? Well, we know later uh, through the course of the investigation following their cell phone uh, tracking that they actually drove by the perimeter on numerous occasions. And we hypothesized that they, you know, didn't get that point yet, but they had left an explosive device inside that that room and Mm -hmm. it didn't detonate. And it turned out they didn't, you know, wire it correctly, but we suspect that they were driving by to try to get in enough close proximity where they could detonate the, uh, the device, um, you know, on the officers inside. Holy cow. I read one article. There were as many as 300 officers responded. There were probably at least 300. Um, and they had, which is bigger than your department, right? Yeah. And there was, there was agencies I'd never heard of, um, assets that showed up that, uh, that, it's great to have everything because you never know what you're going to need, right? But I even got pulled aside by one person in an unmarked van and in civilian clothes that says, hey, um, I've got a predator overhead if you need to have any uh, video. <laughs> so, hey, that either sounds like Delta, <laughs> DevGrew, uh, or not the agency. Agency's not supposed yeah. to be operating on U.S. Right. soil, but you never know. But uh, but I didn't ask him where he was from, and he's. I said, okay, I'll get back to you because I'm running around doing all kinds of stuff. But uh, yeah, there are all kinds of assets. Did you ask uh, him available. if the Predator had a Hellfire missile attached to it as well? <laughs> yeah, is it, arm, is it armed? But, uh, yeah. but yeah, so we had a ton of people, and you know, and the interesting thing about this is an active shooter event, historically, as you guys well know, um, at an active shooter event, the, the suspects usually stay there and they engage law enforcement. And it's almost like a murder-suicide type thing that they expect to engage the police and be killed potentially. But the suspects were gone and we're like, well, geez, they're gone. Where did they go? Um and what's going, going back on? to the gang conference real quick, we had the chance to meet the two Nashville officers who took out the active shooter. Um mm-hmm. At that school shooting, and it was the Covenant School, and it's like, yeah, that's what they did. They, sh- the the sh- the shooter took out the folks, was waiting around, and got engaged by law enforcement. Right. It's a little strange to show up to an active shooter, and there's no active shooter anymore. Right, and that was obviously we're doing the the due diligence and going through room by room to search the uh, or the officers are searching the the buildings, and uh, very quickly we realized that more than likely they were gone altogether, and so at some point um, we gathered up all of our. Um, resources. And that's one thing you, you know, you like to have, it was bad in the sense that it was an uncontrolled response. Um, but at that point we're like, Hey, we, we don't know why this was the focus of the attack. We don't know if they're going to go somewhere else, but let's start deploying people to areas that we think that they might go to next. So we basically started assigning people to the courts, to the schools and sending officers out to everywhere that we could think of that the suspects might go to next. And during that time, we started getting reports of other active shooters. 
So we have a large Amazon uh, location next to our airport where they have a huge million square feet Amazon distribution centers. And we got a call that there was an active shooter at the Amazon distribution center. So we're thinking, crap, they went over there. And, uh, and then we got a call that was somewhere else that there was another active shooter. So we started getting these, these calls that there were other active shooter events in our city taking place. And obviously your first instinct, your first, first thought is it's these people who have now gone somewhere else. So we deploy all these assets all over the city and, and some other, um, you know, government buildings and stuff like that. Was that just his, you know, uh, hysteria? Was it just, hey, well, you know, there's an active shooter. We've got, we think we got one here. Was the news getting out by that time or what accounted for these people reporting? It, it's rare to get an active shooter call, but to get two or three in the same day, it's almost like impro- Im- impossible. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of hysteria. People, you know, hearing something, seeing something, and all of a sudden getting kind of, you know, excited and, and calling and say, hey, I think something's going on over here. And we got at least two of those types of calls. And uh, obviously that, caused us to have to think we got to deploy people in case this actually takes place. But as we come to find out, right, there was nothing to those other calls. No, they were totally unfounded. Yep. But then we started looking back over, you know, days later and we started getting um, where we'd had reports of like, um, you know, males that fit the profile of uh, um, terrorists that were actually, um, you know, people thought they were scouting the mall. Um, several days before the attack. Um, so we had to follow up on some of those um, types of reports and stuff like that to see if they were valid. So this went on for like quite a while where, you know, for over a week, we were following up on a lot of tips. You know, now we're going back over all the we tips and, and looking at things that happened elsewhere to see if we had done everything that we needed to. Well, let's talk about how um, th- this engagement comes about because, you, I mean, you're getting into this, you're a couple hours in and you got all sorts of people over the place, but uh, eventually, not only do you identify them, you, you end up locating. How does that happen? So now, now walk us through the remainder of this. So part of it is that we did have information about um, where the suspects' names, at least the, the one male suspect. We still didn't know who the second suspect was, whether it was a male or female. We, you know, witnesses had said it was a male. So, but we hey, got at least real, one name. Real quick on that question too. That that's what I was reminding of. Um, the female suspect was she dressed in such a way to make it appear that she was a male, or was she dressed as female and people just couldn't discern that because of obviously you're getting shot at. You may not grab all the she details. Was, she was dressed in the same manner that the other suspect was. Okay. So, um, like black BDUs with like some tactical equipment on and stuff like that. So, and they had hoods on that you couldn't see their faces. So, um, no way for all these people at that moment to, no one ever identified as a female. No one ever did. Uh, matter of fact, um, the, the initial descriptions that we were going off of was either, um, two Hispanic or white males is what we initially received. So, th- you know, going forward, there was a, um, I'm trying to remember a little bit about how this, I've done this um, presentation so many times, but it's been a few years. But um, so we had the name and then we had some suspicious calls. So there was um, a call of the suspects drove around, like you mentioned, they, they drove all over the city. I have a presentation where we tracked them eventually, the FBI put it together off cell tower sites and stuff like that, where they drove all over the city. I mean, it's almost like they didn't know where to go or what to do. Uh, they did track by the IRC on several occasions, which we suspect that they uh, were trying to get close enough to detonate that bomb. Were any of these other places you say they were driving by, any of those, the, the locations you thought they might go by, like a school or a courthouse or anything? Or was it yeah, just- they, threw, they drove through our downtown, um, specifically um, 
I don't know that anyone's gone back to see specifically what locations. Other than I, it tracks them through different streets, but they they never stopped at the, any of those that I'm aware of and stuff like that. But um, so we so we had the name um, of the suspect, and then there was an analyst that worked in our asset forfeiture unit that took it upon herself to start going through some of these calls. And there was a suspicious vehicle call at a park, and it kind of matched the description of the suspect's vehicle that we had. And so, and there was a license plate. And at the time, we had sent an officer out and uh, to that park. But by the time the officer got there, that vehicle was gone. So there was never any contact. But there was a license plate. And I think that license plate came back to Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And uh, so she's running it. And, you know, we, we, she at the time was dealing a lot with the rental car companies because a lot of drug dealers rent cars and stuff like that. So she had a good relationship. So she calls him up and, um, she says, Hey, I got this suspicious vehicle call. And can you tell me anything about, you know, who leased it and stuff like that? Turned out it was, it was rented by our suspect. And then, um, she was able to get the address that he used for that. And then she passed it on the sergeant in charge of the narcotics unit to follow up on. Well, at the time, even though we had the suspect's name and some information, the, all the, all the locations, the addresses that were in the government databases, whether it's driver's license, or whatnot, was for an old address. We didn't have a new address for him. And although they were going out and searching these places, they couldn't find them. And, but this was a new address. So I'm in the command post the entire time. I was the uh, deputy incident commander. Um, we didn't know any of this was taking place. So, um, they weren't passing this information on the homicide. And although a lot of people think that it was a federal investigation because the feds came out, they eventually did become a federal investigation, but not for three days. Um, it was, we were the lead organization. We were the lead homicide investigations as an agency because it was a homicide investigation in our city. And we have, you know, that's what we do. We do a lot of those. And so this sergeant took that information and they decided to follow up on it, and they headed over there to uh, Redlands, where that address was. Well, at the at the same time, our our uh, some of our homicide detectives had that got that information. I can't remember exactly how they got it. So they sent two of our homicide investigators over that location to see if they there was a car over there or anything like that. So they show up over there in the Crown Victoria, wearing their their uh, San Bernardino PD raid jackets and and stuff. And as they drive up the location driving towards them is the suspects and they see them and they're like, Holy crap. That's, that's the suspects right there or the suspect in the suspect vehicle. And the suspects were driving. Yeah. They, they didn't identify a female in that car at the time, but they knew that was the suspect vehicle because it had the right license plate. I mean, so, but it was like a, wasn't it a big black, like a GMC or an SUV yeah, or something? Yep. SUV. Ford Expedition. Yep. So they, they have to get turned around to follow it. They get on the radio and, and we hear them. They say, Hey, we found the suspect or the suspects. We got the vehicle and uh, they put it out over the radio. And we're like, awesome. Because at this time it'd been hours. I mean, it'd been several hours since the incident happened and we didn't know where these people were. And, you know, obviously as a police department, you feel the pressure of we need to find these people and, and, you know, make sure that this doesn't happen again. But by the time they get turned around to get behind the suspects, they lost them. And they come on the radio and say, Hey, we've lost the suspects. We don't know where they're at and we can't find them. Unbeknownst to them, those homicide detectives and unbeknownst to us in the command post, the the, uh, narcotics unit had gotten there and uh, they had, you know, five, six, um, narcotics officers and, and unmarked cars, and uh, they saw the suspects and picked up a rolling surveillance of the suspects. Unfortunately, they didn't get on the radio and tell anybody, 
And, uh, and the reason why they said it is, well, we didn't want to get on the radio and maybe the suspects had a scanner and they'd know that we were following them. Well, they didn't pick up the cell phone either and call us and tell us. So, but in the meantime, the suspect gets on the freeway to head back in the direction of San Bernardino and they're surveilling them, doing like a rolling surveillance on the suspects. Uh, they flag down a sergeant from Redlands PD and tell him, hey, we're San Bernardino PD narcotics. You know, I'm sure you know about the shooting. We're following the suspects. We need you to make a traffic stop on them. So he's like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> so this so, isn't just ripping off a dope dealer who just did a, a, an eighth of an, you know, an eight ball, a Coke yeah, or whatever. Exactly. So he gets on his radio, um, alerts his uh, dispatch, which we're not monitoring, you know, their dispatch because we got so much going on and we never do anyway. Um, so even though Redlands is aware of it, we're not in the command post aware that that now Redlands is going to make a traffic stop on this guy. So he finally gets caught up to the suspects as they get off the freeway in the city of San Bernardino and they start heading northbound on Waterman Avenue, uh, which is a kind of a major north-south thoroughfare in the city. And he eventually gets caught up to him and he turns on his uh, audio recording. So we have an actual uh, audio and I have it, the audio recording of his what's going on. So he gets up there and starts following the suspects and then he tries to pull them over and uh, they, they turn and stuff. And eventually he comes out and they start shooting and it's the female. She's in the back seat, starts shooting at him. So he's taking gunfire. Of course, he backs off um, the suspects. I, don't think they knew that there was probably about five or six other um, police cars around them, just unmarked following them. And so eventually the suspects stop. Um, he stops a distance behind them to create some distance. So he's not taking, you know, fire very closely. And then the gun battle starts. It's just uh, a huge gun battle. Um, our officers jump out. Um, they start, uh, you know, kind of maneuvering around to put gunfire on it. And the driver, who is the male suspect, gets out and starts walking across the street while he's engaging our officers. Um, and he is killed probably about uh, 30 seconds into this. He goes down in the street. He's, he's wounded, shot multiple times, and he expires. But there's still someone who we believe that's alive in the backseat. And there's still a tremendous amount of gunfire towards that. You know, on the audio I have, um, you can hear the gunfire from the officers firing at the suspect's vehicle. And at some point, somebody says, are they still shooting at us? And we don't know, <laughs> but there's still more rounds going down, <laughs> down range at the suspect's vehicle. Mm. We suspect, you know, I got the autopsy reports. Um, that suspect in the back of the car was probably had 20 gunshot wounds that would have killed her within seconds, according to the, co the coroner's report. Um, but and we suspect that she was dead relatively soon in this incident, the exchange of gunfire. But the actual police car um, was hit and stuff like that. But what happens, what's interesting enough, and I didn't cover that, is that there's another um, deputy that comes into the scene. He drives past that sergeant from Redlands PD and places himself between the suspects and that sergeant. And obviously, he's pinned down right away because he's in really close proximity to the uh, the suspects. And uh, so that's, you know, he's obviously, you know, in danger and he's got to be rescued in this. But, you know, the craziness of it is, is that um, there was like, I think, 23 officers that fired rounds downrange and probably, I think, five to 600 rounds or more that went downrange that we could account for. Um, and you'd have officers that, 
you know, during their interviews, I was, I was 15 feet away from the suspects. And then we were able to do the course of the investigation, place them hundred feet, 150 feet with a handgun shooting at the suspects. So, um, you know, a lot Only of on TV, can you sit back with a two inch sub notes 38 <laughs> from 300 feet away and hit the suspect with the first shot? Yeah. Wing it work that way in real life. So it's, it's pretty chaotic. And the, the thing is, is that there was a lot of stuff going on. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of like the fog of war, so to speak, because, uh, obviously there's a lot of civilians that don't know what's going on and our officers are jumping through backyards to get to maneuver, to get closer to the suspect's vehicle and stuff like that. So we're getting calls um, from people saying, hey, they're in my backyard, the suspect's in my backyard. And so we're constantly chasing these ghosts, which are actually police officers that are going through backyards and jumping over fences because we knew that one suspect had exited the vehicle. And now we're, now we're hearing through witnesses that mm-hmm. there is a suspect fleeing on foot and they're in his backyards and stuff like that. And then also kind of a funny aside is that there is a, there's a deputy who's in close proximity to the events going on. And he runs a license plate that comes back stolen. And, uh, he gets in a pursuit of a stolen vehicle blocks away. And then we got the air support and they see the lights and siren thinking that's the suspects. And they're following the, the stolen car pursuit thinking that's related to the, to the terrorist attack. And so there's all this stuff going on, um, around us that, uh, is taking place. And then our air support unit, the one thing that our sheriff's department does is they will actually engage suspects from the air um, with their weapons. So the funny thing is that I have this recording that uh, the, 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 the pilot on the uh, aircraft says, hey, um, if I lose you, if I, you don't hear from me in a minute, it's because my, uh, I'm having to fly the aircraft and, and talk on the radio because my co-pilot is transitioning back to the back seat with his M4 because <laughs> they'll actually get down low and use it as a shooting platform to take suspects out. Wow! And you thought that only happened in the movies? No, folks, it happens in real <laughs> I life. Love it. Yeah. I love but, it. But I'll tell you what—that takes some—that takes some skill because you're in a mm-hmm. you're in an aircraft moving. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my. So, um, what were most of the? Uh, we know that the 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 the, the terrorists—they're armed, as we know later. They're terrorists. Um, they're armed with uh, two twenty three. Um, yes. Most cops were what nines. Um, you know, there was a number of officers that did have uh, M fours. Um, but most officers just had their sidearms. There was, uh, amazingly, there was some officers who fired off shotgun rounds. And, uh, and so we have these police cars that are between the suspects and the, um, and the, uh, and these officers that, that were behind the vehicles. Right. And I'm looking at these crime scene photos and I'm looking at, Hey, is that a shotgun wadding? Well, that's 30 feet behind the, the uh, officer's vehicle. <laughs> so, and, uh, so it was, it was kind of chaotic. Um, you know, probably people that had fired that probably shouldn't have fired just because they, they weren't in a position to actually hit the target, quite honestly. But, you know, uh, you know when you get in a shootout, whoever fires that first round, it's like a, a it's, immediate reaction. Everybody starts yeah. yanking that trigger. Well, it, what it's happened? Like, it's like giving a standing ovation. Yeah, everybody looks around, but the first time somebody stands up, everybody's like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. well, I'm the, in. Yeah. The officers engaged the suspect and I should say suspect's vehicle, probably for about five or six minutes. And what mm-hmm. would happen is you listen to the tape is that um, you would hear somebody shoot and maybe they, they perceived that there was some movement in the vehicle and then they would shoot. And then all of a sudden you hear pow, 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 mm-hmm. pow. <laughs> I'm going to start shooting yeah. again. And, uh, yeah. and then you'd have to get the sergeants trying to get control of saying, cease fire, cease fire, cease fire. And uh, I sent, my, uh, one of my lieutenants, who's a good friend of mine, he'd been involved in several officer-involved shootings, um, 
pretty, pretty heroic stuff. And I sent him down there to kind of take control of that scene. And, um, he told me later, he says, Eric, I, I've never been scared on any of my shootings that I've engaged in. He says, as much as I hear. And I said, is, he says, it's not because I got, I thought I was going to get shot by the suspects because I thought I was going to get shot by another cop. And Jeez. lo and behold, some of the police cars that are facing the suspect that have open doors that the officers use as cover have gunshot uh, um, impacts from the rear on the police cars. Fire. Yeah. Oh, wow. That and crossfire. I mean, a lot of people don't re- – before you pull that trigger, what's on the other side of it? I mean, it's a circular firing squad. Yep. Mm-hmm. I got to say that as many rounds that went down range, and there were people like pulled onto the side of the, the, the road um, in that neighborhood kind of witnessing what was taking place. It was a residential neighborhood, kind of a, a wider street. But uh, although we shot – a stolen car because it's San Bernardino and we just have stolen cars randomly parked throughout the city. <laughs> there was a stolen car shot. There was mailboxes shot. There were houses shot. Fortunately, there was no um, collateral uh, damage or injuries to people. Um, just wow. objects. You know. Holy cow. But um, now, but they, my understanding too was they attempted, they had either was non-functioning or malfunctioning, but they had another explosive they tried to use out there, right? Or was that um, no? That was something that was um, bad info. They never had actually another device out there. Okay, there was something that was. I think someone saw it come off a vehicle or something, and they suspected it might be an explosive device, but it but it turned out not to be. And, and see, that's the problem too. You get these stories. That's why it's good to get you know get, mm-hmm. get somebody in here who knows about it because people will run with it. It's we had Bill Sarukas on and uh, Jeff Nye. Uh, Jeff Nye was Montgomery County. <coughs> Bill Sarukas, U.S. Marshals, involved in the D.C. sniper. And what's one of the biggest things of the DC sniper? White panel van. Everybody started, you take a story, it starts blowing up, it's anchored in everybody's mind. And that's mm-hmm. the thing here is that's one thing we're trying to do is just drill down through this and just get to the meat of the matter, which is, you know, what's real, what's not. But I, I'm like you, I'm amazed with all the shots that went off. Um, uh, other than the the initial shooting, the 14 victims, the, the 21 injured, that um, nobody was killed out at that scene with as right. much lead that was flying through the air. And, you know, back to your point about the white panel van, we put out that the suspect's vehicle was this black SUV. And you don't realize how many black SUVs there are until one's involved in a, in a mass murder. Yeah. And there's one on every street corner. And yep. of course, everybody, every officer in Southern California is making traffic stops on black SUVs and it's taking place all over the place. But, uh, but going back a little bit to, you talked about the explosive device. So, Going back to just before um, we found the suspects and engaged in that, that, uh, that shooting with them, the SWAT teams had gone through. We had multiple SWAT teams that were going through, sweeping the building, clearing it out and stuff like that, making sure that the suspects weren't there. And they, they had recently come out and they're make, trying to make a decision. Do we need to turn it over to homicide? Because homicide actually hadn't initiated the investigation inside. And we're probably about four five hours into this investigation, but it hadn't been made secure yet, so to speak. And there was a debate on whether they had done enough to, uh, to clear that building out and turn it over to homicide. And then the officer involved shooting happened. And then as, as you know, we talk about the self-initiated deployment to the initial scene. Now, suddenly everybody that's on the perimeter, everybody that's engaged there, they know that the suspects are in that building. Now I think there's no more longer any importance for me to be here. So everyone's abandoning the perimeter. They're running out their police cars, but there's so many police cars that if you got there early on, your police cars, you know, kind of you're like jammed up. You're yeah. they're log jammed in there. So yeah. one thing that we knew is that, you know, we have one key that functions to, to operate all of our police cars. 
what we didn't realize sometimes is that some of those are keyed for other police departments too. So people were, you know, try the car that was the blast in line, whether it was from their agency or not. Hey, this one works. I'm out of here. And they'd get jump in the car and take off and self-deploy over to the other scene and show up. Oh, so geez. speaking of a continuing <laughs> rash of auto thefts happening. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so it was kind of a chaotic uh, scene. But once we um, that was done and secure, we said, hey, we need to go back in and uh, recheck the interior. Someone said, hey, let's just go back in there and recheck this thing again. It wasn't until then that that original explosive device was found on the table. Wow. And and you said they, they were driving by, so it sounds like they had some kind of a remote uh, detonation trigger like yeah, a cell so phone or something similar. The way they had it, talking to the guys that are experts on this stuff, is that they used a uh, remote-controlled RC car um, as the, the device that would detonate it. So you use the remote control for the uh, RC car to detonate it. Um, kind of unique about this, the guys kind of laughed, is that they never took the shell off the car. So you see in the in the uh, the the backpack the actual car that's hooked up to the bomb, <laughs> which are several pipe wow. bombs that are connected together. But uh, they never he never took it off. But he they said he kind of knew what he was doing. He just kind of missed a step. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of my buddies were um, uh, with uh, New Scotland Yard. They investigated the seven seven zero five train bombings, and we had them on a, a prior episode. Alan Thomas and Graham Burridge, and that's that, that nobody everybody knows about that attack. They forget that there was a second follow on attack mm-hmm. a couple weeks after that, and they were using hydrogen peroxide, uh, uh, TATP type of stuff. But yeah, they those bombs didn't go off to the same point. They they kind of knew what they were doing, but they got the triggers all wrong. And so it didn't detonate, right. which was fortunate for everybody. But in this case, though, too, there's a couple things I want to talk about because um, they tried covering their tracks. They tried destroying their electronics, their phones, and everything uh, before the attack, tried to cover up some of their tracks. Is that right? Yeah, they had uh, gotten rid of, they totally gone offline. Um, there wasn't much of anything. If you go in online to search for them, emails or anything like that, they had pretty much um, gone through and done a pretty good job of eliminating um, their whole electronic uh, footprint. Well, but there was one aspect, and I actually opined about this on some national news shows, and um, I was actually out at the RSA conference, uh, which is a big cybersecurity conference, when Loretta Lynch, who was the AG, was actually talking about this case. Um, And one of the big issues was they had an iPhone 5, and Apple would not cooperate in unlocking the iPhone 5, even though at that time with those phones, they could have. Mm -hmm. What happened there? So... They had gotten rid of their personal phones to this day. Um, we've never found them. And going back to where they were seen at that park, there's a lake there. Um, it's a man-made lake that we have in the city. Um, we fish bodies out of there occasionally. It's a lot of uh, drug activity, so there's a lot of syringes. Um, the FBI dive, dive team, hey, all my hat's off to them. They got in their dry suits and uh, waded through there looking to see potentially if the suspects had had gotten rid of their personal cell phones in there. Never found anything. but. Uh, but they had these, uh, or there was this one iPhone, and it was the uh, the county issued cell phone to the suspect. So it was part of his employment, and so we didn't think. I mean, he maintained it, um, didn't get rid of it, um, and it was the the county phone. But you, you can't leave any anything on unchecked. So they say, hey, we've got to check this phone. So it's my understanding, and I've taken you know at the FBI National Academy Cyber class and stuff like that. It's my understanding that if Apple had wanted to cooperate. You know, they push out those Apple updates to your phone. You can update it. They can do it mm-hmm. to a single device. 
is my understanding. They could have sent out an update specifically to that phone to unlock it, but they stood fast on their privacy thing and saying, we're not going to do it and stuff like that. So, uh, um, the FBI found a vendor that could. <laughs> so, yeah, I believe it was a company my buddy worked for at that time, Celebrite, um, over in the UK was one of the ones that, but they paid a lot of money to do it. Mm-hmm. But but it gets back to the point. See, that was one of the discussions that I remember. I actually thought she made a good point, but it's like, we were at the point where we were allowing one single private company to determine national security policy. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, hey, I get it. You want privacy, but we're talking about a terrorist. I mean, I tell you what, here's my thought. Tim Cook was CEO at the time. Steve Jobs had passed Hold away. On, I don't know if Steve- I got I got uh, housekeeping knocking on my door. <laughs> One second. Yeah. Police search warrant demand entry. Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna make my bed for me. That's why I didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you know what the hell? We're not gonna edit that out. That's fun. No, uh, I was thinking, but um, I don't know if Steve Jobs would have done it, but Tim Cook didn't. But my my thought was always, well, let, let's turn this around. Let's say that it's your kids who have been kidnapped or friends of yours, you know, um, or your family members. And they've got an iPhone. And they, if you unlock it, you can find out where they're at. Would you do it? Would Tim Cook still say, no, we're not going to do it? Right. And the thing is, is that I think they were concerned that that somehow they would give away some kind of proprietary um, you know, information about how their phones operate and the security features. So they kind of held fast. Well, although they could have done that thing without giving any of the technology away for the update. The Bureau said, look, we'll bring it out there. You do what you need to do with the phone. Just unlock it. We don't even want to know how you do it. Just unlock the phone for us. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take it out to your facilities. They still said no. I just think, I know now it's it's gotten to the point, unless you've got the biometric or the password or whatever, it's just virtually impossible to unlock these phones anymore. They, um, well, my, you know, ironically, my my daughter uh, works, at, I told you she works at the department, but she's our Celebrite and Gray Key operator. Uh, I shouldn't say Mike because I'm retired, but so they 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 buy keys and they cost more money. But as the phones and they update the security features, obviously they're always a one step ahead. Um, but how quickly they, that the uh, Celebrite or Gray Key can you know kind of figure it out? Um, you can buy keys, so to speak, to uh, unlock them. But it does, mm-hmm. there is a little bit of a delay. Yeah, and there's a little bit of a cost too. Those things yeah, don't not cheap. cheap. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. They are not cheap. But so, I tell you, um, after the after the uh, the company that broke that phone, uh, the Apple wanted to know who's the company and how they do it. <laughs> so, because they sorry, you had your chance. You could have you. We could have kept this from happening. Now we're not going to tell you how we did it. Hey, but that brings back to the question because you said it was your investigation for three days. At what point did it become apparent to you that this was a terrorist attack? That the, all the indicators were there. Yeah. So early on, we knew it was a terrorist attack. Obviously, I mean. Well, intuitively, I should say. I mean, we didn't have any a- obvious um, evidence that it was. Um, there was no posting or anything that anybody had found and uh, about it. And a funny story is is that uh, the F- we are still the lead organization on it, but the FBI had flown out people from their crime lab and stuff like that. And they said, hey, do you mind? Or we have our crime lab. We can offer you all of this technology. And although our local sheriffs have a very extensive, very good crime lab, some of the capabilities from the FBI exceeded what they had. Plus, they were going to process the entire scene. And it was a a big scene, a big, messy scene, um, so to speak, because you think about it, you know, the number of people you've mentioned that were dead and wounded in there, the sprinklers had come on, mixing with that stuff, and it was spreading all that everywhere. It was a very, very um, messy, messy scene. 
So we said, yeah, sure, come in. You know, if you're going to provide all that assistance, it's just a mutual aid thing. But we are still the lead as far as the investigation goes. So the funny story about it, though, I was going to speak is that we're getting ready. Everything that we did pretty regular press conferences, and we're in this meeting um, before we're going to go out and do another press conference. And we always had all of the lead agencies, us, the FBI, the Sheriff's Department, and, you know, David Bodich, who was at the time, who later went on to advance in the FBI, was the lead there from the LA office. And then my chief and, and I was there and then the sheriff. And uh, we're watching the news and the president comes out, Obama, and he says, the FBI is the lead in this, in this investigation. And uh, at that time, we were still a lead. So uh, David Bodich says, man, how am I going to, how am I, if I get asked, how am I going to, I can't tell him that the president's wrong. So he had to kind of think about how he was going to respond to that if if he asked that asked directly by the media if the FBI was the lead. But we are still lead. So what happened is about three days in or thereabouts, um, the FBI finally found um, a wet, uh, an email or like a a profile online that the suspect had where he had he had actually pledged allegiance to al Baghdadi, and from that they were able to extrapolate that this is a direct connection to terrorism and then they took it as a federal issue and took over the lead in the investigation you know that's very interesting we had um a friend of mine ed davis was the commissioner of boston police when the boston marathon bombing happened and same thing issues there they didn't want if the fbi had taken over at that time and as they found out and declared it a terrorist incident many of the insurance coverages and all the other things that would pay out would not have been in effect because it would have, that was part of their force majeure. Hey, we'll do it except for terrorist attacks. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of politicking and maneuvering involved with mm-hmm. the FBI and Rich Delorier and the guys out there being involved in the marathon bombing as well, simply because of those facts. The minute you come in and you say it's an FBI, once they say it's a terrorist thing, that changes legally the complexion, not only from a criminal standpoint, but insurance, civil damages, everything after that. It's a mess. Well, look, let's talk about the aftermath now. So at some point, like I said, the FBI comes in and takes over. Um, When are you at the point to where you are satisfied that there are no more suspects, that there are no more follow-on attacks, anything else coming on? You know, we were pretty confident um, after the suspects were located and taken out that that was the only information that we had was that there were two suspects and we knew we had two suspects dead at the scene. And speaking of that a little bit, you know, we actually used a, um, a, uh, a rook. It's looked like an armored caterpillar and it was from another agency that brought it in, which then went up to the car, opened the door and actually reached in and pulled the second suspect out of the back seat and dropped it onto the ground outside and then started manipulating the clothes, checking it for explosive devices and it wasn't until that moment when they put over there, hey, this is a woman. Um, and at, up to that point, we had no idea. Mm. Wow. Um, but but obviously, the the you know, you're consolidating this. The other word I had, too, and I just wanted to check that with you, too. It's like 12 of the people, uh, the victims, they died at the scene, but two of them survived long enough but to get to triage. And they died in triage later. Um is that, no, is everybody, that- no, the, um, we had some, they, nobody died at the hospital. Everybody that made it to the hospital survived. Um, everybody that died, died at the scene. Right. Okay. And, and see, that's, that's why I said you, you read some of this stuff and it's like, you know, we've always tell people do your own due diligence. And that's why it's great getting you on and, and other folks like you on who were there that know what's really going on. Because if you believe what's written out there about everything, um, as we found out, 
it's highly inaccurate. I mean, some if somebody says something and somebody repeats it now and say, oh, look, I've got three people saying the same thing. It must be true. No, the first guy got it wrong. The other two just repeated what was wrong. And, and maybe there's some confusion because, um, so we had the victims that were inside the the building, the conference room at the IRC, and um, and they had to get taken across the street to where we had the triage location um, for the victims. And that was across the street on the golf course. And so we had officers that, you know, carried them out of the building, um, put them in the, uh, the, you know, a vehicle backseat of a car and drove them across the street. So there were a couple of people that were wounded, um, that were taken to that triage location, but before they could be evacuated, they, they expired, they died. That's, so that's, they, but everybody that made it to the hospital survived. That's what I was getting at too. That's what I thought in terms of the triage, some of the folks that did not make it out of triage, but everybody went to the hospital, survived, which is a testament yes. to that golden hour. You got to get that care. Um, when you, when and we you got them out of there very, very quickly, we're, they're landing helicopters right there on the fairway to, to medevac those folks out. Nice. Man. Um, in all your years, uh, have you had an incident bigger than this? No, that was the biggest. And, you know, at the time we've had some, uh, some terrorist attacks in the country that eclipsed that. But at the time that it happened, it was by loss of life, um, the largest terrorist attack in the United States after 9-11. Hmm. Which is not a good reputation to have. No. no. It, was, it was eclipsed very shortly thereafter by the Pulse, which actually had more victims. Down in Orlando, but up to that yeah. Point, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And Sandy Hook. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is you, you always have wonder, you know, it's such a small world. And here I am looking at some pictures of the, of the incident down the pulse. And I see this officer standing in the front that I actually was in the Marines with, um, in the, in front of the pulse. Wow. So, yeah. Small world. Let's, let's talk about, um, after action, which the military is, you know, very fond of doing after action reports. W- what are some of the things that came out of this that actually helped make things better for a future response? You know, it's there's something that has come up. You mentioned it in the Dorner incident. It happened in our incident, and it seems to happen again and again and again. It's the uncontrolled self-deployment of officers to these types of incidents. And um, and the the thing is, is that while you know they're supposed to check in on mutual aid, they're supposed to check in and get a, an assignment. Um, people tend to self-deploy and take up their own assignment, and it's not necessarily things that we need to be done. Um, and they do it um, on their own. And there is an element, to be honest, that we do need some of that. And, you know, we hire police officers that take the initiative to do things. You don't want them to have to stand there and, and wait to be given direction. Um, but sometimes that's a little on steroids and it and it, they overdo it. Um, for example, I mean, I was in uniform wearing three stars and I'm trying to stop these people from other agencies to say, hey, I need you on the perimeter. And they kind of look at me. Um, I don't. I don't, they don't work for me because I'm from a different department and they just keep going past me because you know, they want to get inside the building. And, um, and, but this is a, a, something that's repeated again and again. And, you know, it's often discussion when I'd go around the country and speak about the incident, people would say, Hey, how do you, how do you prevent this from happening? And, you know, it's, it's a hard decision because it's like, do you, you, you praise people with their self, self-initiative, but then you want to rein it in and discipline people if they don't do what you want them to do. Um, and, and you have to find that balance a little bit. Um, so that was a, a big takeaway. How do we, how do we fix that? How do we, how do we correct that self-deployment over-deployment? Um, there, matter of fact, there was agencies where some of their officers were in our city shooting at the suspects and their agencies didn't even know they were there. 
Jeez. And they're there from like some, another county. <laughs> so, there should have been some massive ass chewings going on when all that yeah. was found out. Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, at, at the end, we're trying to determine all of the shooters. And the one of the per- persons didn't even disclose at the time, at the initially, that they had fired any rounds. Uh, uh, why? Because they would have had to write reports? Maybe. You know, the thing about... Uh, going back to being a police officer on the streets for a lot of times, it was, and we've mutu- you know deployed mutual aid for other agencies and for l- small riots and stuff. And it's it's always like, hey, you get to go over there, kick ass, and and get it out of there before any papers taken, right? So you go over there, shoot off your your less lethal munitions on the rioters, and take care of action. And hey, no one ever saw me. I'm out of here, and you don't have to write a report, right? Um, obviously, today with with cameras and stuff, that's probably hopefully taking place a lot less than it ever did um, in the past. But that's kind of like the mindset, I think, a lot of times of officers that, hey, it's not my city. I'm not responsible for the writing the, the report, and they want to get out of there. And I apologize for some background noise here real quick. My neighbor decided to start doing tree trimming right as we're doing this. But but that kind of reminds me, too, of um, one of the reasons why we got the National Incident Management System after 9-11. We had to have a coordinated way for people to do this. It, it just seems to me as I like, you know, people want to get involved. And that's your point. You don't want to tamp that down. But at the same time, how do you get people to have the mission mindset, which said, look, um, everybody's got a particular role, a particular mission. What's If I'm coming in from an outside area, the biggest thing I can do is provide support. I'm, I'm not going to be tip of the spear because that's reserved for the agency whose responsibility mm-hmm. it is. How do we change that with training? To your point, how do we not cut back on the warrior mindset, but at the same time, how do we make them part of an effective fighting unit, which is, as you know, hey, everybody, every Marine unit, every Army unit, whatever else, everybody's got a role. You got to do your role. I think part of it is kind of like what we we did with active shooter. Where we, we did so much training where we drilled in that hey, when you get there, don't wait for backup. It that, and that's been the evolving training too because it was originally get there, form a team, and make entry right. But we're still waiting too long before we went in there. And the the training's kind of evolved in active shooters that if you're the first person there, even if you're alone, make entry. And, and try to locate and take down the suspects. And you hear a lot of times some officers, well, I got to have a backup. Well, you know what? You get paid a lot of money for somebody that has a high school education. Um, mm-hmm. You knew the dangers of the job and you knew that you're going to put in a position like that and you accepted the position. So go forth and do your job. But I think it's going to come down to where, you know, this deployment issue, um, mutual aid becomes, and and they do do training, but not enough. that we Agencies really drill it in to where, if you respond to another jurisdiction, make sure you get a point of contact with that other agency. Understand when you arrive what your role is in that, because your role is not going to be actively engaged in what's taking place more than likely. It's going to be those secondary assignments like securing the perimeter, uh, making sure that no evidence that it's on the ground escapes, or that the suspects, if there's still an active engagement, don't escape the perimeter. Yeah, uh, back in 2012, uh, I've told some other, I was the senior law enforcement advisor for the Republican National Convention down in Tampa, actually. But the role of the National Guard there, they say, why is the National Guard here? It was to offload the protection responsibilities for a lot of these areas we're operating out of so that the police could deploy to there. The National Guard had a very specific role. Um, and, and that's why I think part of the training ought to be is like, yeah, you want people getting in there. But man, it's so hard to do that when shit's, when, you know, lead's flying or, you know, the smoke's blowing and mm-hmm. the action is going on. I think cops instinctively want to get involved but man it's one of those things it's like yeah but but not everybody gets to be there at the tip of the spirit of pool right. everybody wants to take the bad guy or girl down but sometimes mm-hmm. that's just not your role that day right absolutely and that's the mindset they want to hey there's a bad guy in there 
we need to take them down. Maybe that's going to be me today. And that's the mindset. Yeah. So I hate to be, um, because <laughs> there, there's some folks out there who've won some awards for doing stuff, but sometimes you've run into those people, right? To where it's like, why are you here? Well, I'm, I'm just here to help. And it's like in the, in the back of your mind going, no, you're just here uh, to get an award. You're just here to get a medal. You know, are, are you doing it? Are you doing it for yourself? Are you, are you doing it for your buddies and for the good of the operation and the mission, what's going on? Yeah, and, right. and I'll hit on that a little bit. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, I did a lot of presentations on this incident along with the chief. I mean, I was getting, I was flying all over the country and uh, I would talk about the things that didn't go right as much as the things that did. And um, because I think you learn more from the things that didn't go, go Mm -hmm. right um, that you hope not to be repeated. And, um, and I said, you know, I, I would tell people, I said, everybody viewed what we did as a success that we had a textbook um, response to this incident. Um, but let me tell you what happened. I said, but everybody views it as we had the textbook response because at the end of the day, we located the suspects and they were taken out without any additional loss of life. But, but for all the mistakes that happened, if it didn't end up the way it did, people would have pointed at us saying, you guys did all these things wrong. And, right. and to that point, we kind of reinforce that a little bit because of the response to what we did and how the end result, everybody viewed everybody in the agency that had any point in this or any touch of it as a hero that we did an awards thing. And so a lot of these people who did things that they probably shouldn't have done, that they should have done differently, um, were all given awards, which kind of reinforced the things that they had done. Yeah. Um, and that's a tough thing to do. You want to recognize people for bravery and what they do, but it's like, but well, let me reverse and ask the question this way. You had 300 people show up. How many people did you really need to get the job done that day? Did you need all 300? We didn't need 300. Um, the perimeter was large only because we didn't know, obviously, you know, in law enforcement, you always create the biggest you know, perimeter that you can because you don't know the extent. And then you kind of, after you get there and realize what it is, you condense it um, because you can't, it's more difficult to grow a crime scene perimeter than it is to reduce it. Um, and we did take a number of, you know, quite honestly, more, it was just as important to keep the media out of the crime scene because it was probably the largest media response that we'd ever seen. Um, probably a hundred credentialed members of the media with cameras who are all trying to like crawl through a dry riverbed to get a, a, a better shot of the crime scene and stuff like that. So to some extent, the, uh, the number of people securing the crime scene, which is about 60 in this big, large perimeter, whereas to keep the media out as much as it was to, you know, preserve the evidence. So initially we needed that many people and, uh, but it got dialed in. I mean, when you really look at it, maybe 50 people have secured a perimeter. Um, there was really only 10 people, 15 people that needed to go into the IRC building itself to secure it. Um, obviously there was some fatigue, uh, it was a commercial building that had steel reinforced, um, door jams, which, um, were very difficult to breach. Um, you know, so it took a lot of time to breach those doors and get in and adequately search. But, um, but we, yeah, we didn't need necessarily 300. That was a little overkill. Absolutely. Jeez. <laughs> hey, um, 
kind of as we bring this to a close, let's just talk about the why did you get any sense or did the information, the intelligence tell you why they picked the particular target they did? I mean, they were obviously going to do something, but <laughs> that day, was it just simply because of the shooter, the the the, the male's uh, familiarity because he was the county employee and knew that? Or was there any reason this, I mean, f- by all accounts, these folks are like the least um, uh, I mean, the, the least offensive people you're going to find out there, they're trying to work with people, you know, trying to help people out. It's like, what is it that these guys did that put them on the radar of these two pieces of shit? You know, um, no one truly knows why they picked that particular day um, to do it. Um, there's been a lot of speculation out there, and I've heard people talk about the triggers. So it was during the holiday season. And the IRC has this conference room that gets rented out um, virtually um, around the clock for different events during that time of the year. And what they had, they had a Christmas tree in there. They had some um, holiday decorations and stuff like that um, because, you know, people would come in there hosting Christmas parties and, and using that little small conference center to do that. So there's some speculation by people that, well, they came in there and they had this, um, this holiday stuff and they're they radicalized and that triggered them and they left and went their guns and, and came back and did it. But I think that it was just that for some reason they had it in their mind, they were going to do this attack. Um, that day was a day where they had um, a significant amount of people gathered there to um, that they had as an opportunity to do it. And that's why they did it. You know, it, it didn't go down the way they wanted. Um, they stopped out. They, because the suspects or the male suspect was there at the event. He left, went home and got his wife. But before he went and got her, he left his backpack with the bomb on the table. When they showed up at the location of the vehicle, um, we believe based on the statements of that other suspect that, um, that didn't carry out a terrorist attack, that they, how they had planned to do an attack at that uh, junior college, placing the bomb in the library and exploding it and then shooting people coming out. We believe that they tried to detonate the bomb when they arrived, and then they were in place to shoot the people as they evacuated, but the bomb didn't detonate, so they had to make a hasty entry into the, uh, the building to actually shoot people. And so there, I, I, I think, and I think some others think, that their plan didn't necessarily go as they had made it out to be, and they had to make entry. But here's the thing is, as we always know, bad guys always have the advantage, right? Because they know what they're going to do and they pick the time and place and the good guys and girls are the ones having to react to that, right? And yeah, they did they did make an adjustment on it, but, it's, but that's the point. That's that's a favorite tactic of terrorists too, the follow-on attacks, you know, the explosive device. People think, mm-hmm. oh, that's the incident. No, that's, the, that's, that's just to get you yeah. out into the public so they can shoot you. All right, well, let's talk about you now. You had, though, made some overtures to go be chief somewhere else. Like I said, you you tested, uh, you know, as a lieutenant and stuff. So why'd you stay there? I mean, you rose up. Did you retire as assistant chief? I retired as the chief. As the chief? No. Yeah, I I applied uh, at at, that small city, beach city, as a police chief, a lot smaller than San Bernardino. I was a lieutenant at the time, and and I didn't get the job. But what's interesting, when I talked to the headhunter, he says, hey, you're only lieutenant. Um, what makes you think you're qualified to, to be the chief here? I said, well, I have a district. I have as many officers in my district as you do um, in this police department. And it's just a headhunter. And I said, besides, I said, I'll probably get him promoted to captain pretty soon. And then I'll be making more than your chief. And I'll be out of your price. I'll be out of the market for you guys. You guys can't afford me. <laughs> so they ultimately picked somebody else that was already a chief uh, somewhere to come in. And, uh, and, and they got the job, but, uh, 
but I had the opportunity, I you know, to promote the chief, uh, and I was the chief for the last three years of my career in San Bernardino. So, what was the process like? Um, um, obviously, it's always good to have the hometown advantage. You know, have the home field advantage. You know, you're already assistant chief. Um, what was it? Was there a lot of competition though for the position? There wasn't for that because the uh, the chief had um, retired. Well, actually, had gone off on injury first, and so I was the uh, acting chief. Uh, for about uh, a little while, for a year. And then he retired medically and I just stayed on as the chief and I became the interim chief. And there's kind of a funny thing is that um, technically post, which is overseas police dad, there's, you know, since I was the only one that was chief on, you know, I was able, I qualify as the chief uh, for, for the purposes of post, but uh, the city was trying to play hardball negotiations with me and they didn't want me to uh, get certain uh, benefits and stuff. And, uh, I kept saying, well, you know, then, then go find yourself a chief, but well, we don't want to get anybody else, but we want you to agree to these terms. And so uh, I refused to agree to their terms. Um, but they weren't willing to get rid of me. So I still stayed on for the chief for another two years after that first initial year. It's like a standoff. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was like, Hey, I, you know, yeah, go find, if you want me to agree to those, no, go find somebody else. Well, we don't want to get anybody else. So, um, I was a little bit harder of a no- negotiator. So I got all the benefits, the pay, the, you know, everything that would come with chief wore the four stars, got my executive post, which you have to be the chief, not an acting chief, but the chief for two years to qualify for that. And I was the, the chief. So I got my executive post in from California. So. What, what was that movie? It was, uh, um, cool hand Luke. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> right. I can't believe you wouldn't work for free for the city. Come on. Eric. I wasn't at some point we got a, a, a very good pay raise and the city manager came to me and she says, Hey, I, my pay is tied to yours. I'll make 5% more than you, but this, this is like a 20% pay raise. I, I can't go to the city council and take this pay raise. I said, well, I said, um, well, tough. I'm going to take it. Says, but you'll make you. more money than me. <laughs> I said, well, tough to be the city manager, isn't it? So I was the highest paid city employee. <laughs> there you go. Making more than the city manager. Yeah, so. I, I care, but not that much. Well, you do what you got to right. do. I got to do what I got to do. Well, the, and the thing is, is that, you know, you think that it's so important at the time to, to be that good partner. But when you retire, it's not like anybody calls me from the city to see how I'm doing. Right. You got to take care of yourself and make sure you're taking care well, of Well, when you retire, you have about a day and then it's Eric who, you know? Exactly. We're all exactly. expendable and replaceable. Uh, except you, Murph. You know, you know, you. I'm you, the token hillbilly. Yeah, you're the token. We can't get rid of you, man. So, <laughs> That's hey, right. Eric, so what, let, let's talk about you now. What, what are you doing now? So you, you're at a conference right now. You're doing some stuff for the National FBI National Academy. Yeah, so I was I went to the FBI um, National Academy as a student um, before I retired. So a couple of years, several years before I retired, was that? And, uh, um, were you a captain or assistant chief? I was assistant chief at the time. I actually was on the list as a lieutenant, but it's out of the LA office, and uh, we we get only so many slots. And there's a lot of agencies in Southern California, so it's just a matter of. Uh, your number coming up and, and then actually following up. I didn't know. I thought you'd just put in and didn't bug them. And then I come to find out the FBI says, well, you know, we give it to the guys who call us all the time and bug us. I thought that was the people that would piss you off and you wouldn't, you put them on the bottom of the list. And they said, no, no, you got to show that you're really interested in going. But anyway, I had an opportunity to go, but when I got promoted to assistant chief, um, the, the chief tells me, Hey, you know, I know you're on the, on the list for the national Academy, but I can't afford to lose you. You know, you, you got to be here. And how long of a commitment is it to go to the NA? It's uh, 10 weeks. So I'm like, hey, no problem. I, I, I want to get promoted to assistant chief. Uh, I'll forget the National Academy. 
So we have a position that comes available and, uh, and I assign a lieutenant, hey, you're going to go to uh, the National Academy. And I go tell the chief, hey, I'm sending Lieutenant so He goes, well, don't you want to go? And this is several months in, six months later after I got a point. I said, well, you told me that I couldn't go. And he says, no, no, you can go ahead and go. I think at that point, because he appointed me when he got appointed the chief, and maybe he felt a little uncomfortable in his role, and he wanted to ensure that I was there to kind of support him. But then, uh, so I said, okay, I'll go. But then my buddy was on the list, and he was a lieutenant, and he wanted, he thought he had to have the National Academy to get promoted to captain. So I had another spot that opened up, and uh, I said, you know what, I'll go ahead and send you so you can go, you can take my spot. And so he went. And then finally, the, a few weeks later, the coordinator from the FBI called me. She says, you've been on the list for seven years. <laughs> she, goes, she goes, do you want to go or not? I said, well, yeah, I want to go. She goes, okay, I'll put you in the next class. So I got to go to the National Academy. Jeez. Dang. So, yeah. Well, that's a good organization. I had the chance to speak at the FBI National Academy Associates meeting, their first international one they did in Toronto. And uh, it was great time, great, great meeting, got to meet a lot of, and it's one of those things, man, you talk about networking and making friends, you know, all over mm-hmm. the world. So, um, so is that the only thing you're doing or are you doing anything else other than? No, so, you know, my, my partner, so we, we hired a lot of people and when we, um, at our department, you know, we had our own internal background investigators and uh, then we would, because we had so much uh, recruitment going on that we would hire outside background investigative companies. And we really, from that, my partner and I kind of saw a lack of quality, so to speak, and uh, in in both senses. So we said, hey, when we retire, that's something that we really need to do. Plus, you know, we had outsourced um, some of our personnel investigations or the HR department had. We did them all in-house if we, you know, an RIA. But even there, the quality just, we didn't think the quality was there. So um, about a year before I retired, we kind of got all our licensing in place and we said, hey, we're going to start up our own business when we retire. And so we got all the licensing in place, like a PI license and, and a security license to do operate security company as well. And so right when I retired, we were able to transition into our company. And uh, we've grown it quite a bit just in the two years that I've been retired. Actually, I'm about a week short of, uh, or a couple of days short of two years in retirement. And actually, next month I'll be retired uh, two years, and uh, we've grown it to a uh, you know pretty good size uh, company now. We've got about all together with everything, we've got about sixty employees, and uh, we're growing like gangbusters. And you didn't nice. think this experience managing civilians was going to come to benefit you? <laughs> exactly. And you know the funny thing is, is that both my partner and I we did thirty years and. Uh, because we wanted to make sure that we maxed out our pensions mm-hmm. and that we wouldn't have to rely on any income from the business, um, you know, in the beginning, because you need to keep reinvesting into the company as you grow any of the profits. And, uh, but, but we always also talk about, you know, you know, as we get into this, we become successful. Are we ever going to look back and say, man, we should have retired five years earlier, <laughs> you know, because we'd have been making that much money that much sooner. But, uh, but, and, and we're actually getting to that conversation right now, but the, um, but it's a good business to be in. It's a growth industry. Um, a lot of departments are outsourcing their background investigations um, because you just look at if you have an internal person that's an investigator and they're making in California, you know, $65, $75 an hour and they're taking, you know, three, four or five months to complete it. I mean, they're not working continuously on it, but the feedback we've gotten from this, some of the agencies is that their internal investigators are spending 40, 50, 60 hours at that cost. And we're coming in at a fraction of that to get it done um, for them a lot cheaper and faster, which with the competition to hire police officers, you know, 
you have to be the first one. People don't apply generally for just one department. They're applying at five. And if you can get to the point where you can offer them a conditional job offer, give them a conditional job offer, you're going to get them first. And so it's a race to that, to that conditional job offer. Man. So you're staying busy. We are staying pretty busy. My wife says I work more now than I ever did as a chief. <laughs> Mine says the same thing. Yeah, and your wife's going, Eric, who? <laughs> you live here? You know. Exactly. Hey, hey, but dude, I got to tell you this. So we got to bring this to a close because we've kept you long. This is great stuff because we planned on going around 90 minutes, maybe just a little bit past that. But the story, uh, there's just so many lessons to learn out of this. So, um, so first of all, hey, this is us saluting you, saying thank you. I mean, it's a great thing. But for people, if you're cops and you're out there and you're listening to this stuff, what's the name of your company? Where can they find you? A Palacon Group, P-A-L-I-C-O-N, and everyone asks us, "Where's that name come from?" And uh, somebody was drunk, and they misspelled Pelican Group, and it became Palacon well, Group. Well, what's funny is that we wanted to to brand our company that there's no confusion with any other companies. So we we'd come up with a name, and then we get on the internet and Google it, and sure enough, there's somebody named that right. And every all the cops always come up with like. Um, some Greek warrior name or something like that for their company. And obviously we wanted to stay away from that. And so finally my, my partner and his wife were just kind of playing around with arranging words. And he says, what do you think about Palacon group? And we Googled it and we're like, man, there is nobody with that. So everybody asks us, Hey, what's it mean? And I say, nothing. We just made the word up. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's very unique. Yeah. All right, so uh, that's where they can find you at. And hey, look, I got to tell you that it was great. So meet, meeting uh, your niece, meeting your brother, uh, you guys have got a history of service. So we we thank you for yeah, that, absolutely. man. And appreciate appreciate you as the chief, four stars, spending your time with just little old us here, man. <laughs> that's been an honor well, to have you on the show. Yeah. I enjoyed, you know, obviously we know your history, uh, Murph, and, uh, you know, that was a great story. I mean, you know, you're interviewing me, but I got to say, pass on that you had, you know, a, uh, a stellar career and a, and a history that everybody wished they could have and and be built into a TV series. Right. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Eric. But truly, it's been an honor to have you yeah, on man. here, and, and uh, you've got a family legacy there to be extremely proud of in California. So, God bless you and your family, brother. Great. Right. Thank you. Hang tight. You guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Man, uh, I just, you know, I remember that day. I actually did some analysis, news analysis about it. We talked about the use of social media, how they scrub their devices, the ability to track devices. But Eric's insight, uh, you know, and what these folks went through, um, but it just shows you the true nature of sheepdogs, Murph. Um, everybody, some people may not have done it for the right reason, but when shit like this happens, everybody wants to get the bad guy, the bad girl. Everybody wants to get him. Yeah. Um, and they had 300 cops. Oh, my God. Talk about an uncoordinated response. You know, every, and that's the thing about public service. They want to serve. They want to do the right thing. They want to get on the excitement. I mean, that, to be honest with you, that's part of it. But it just creates so many issues out there that, that, uh, evidence is going to fall through the cracks. Very important aspects of any investigation in establishing the elements of a crime can fall through the cracks because you don't have that coordinated response. But it also is a demonstration of the length that links that terrorists will go to attack our country, and the fact that they left that backpack inside that center with the issue with the intention of once the first responders responded to take care of the injured, they were going to blow up a bomb in there. And just thank God, by, by the grace of God, that, that bomb did not go off and saved who knows how many more people. 
Well, a, a common tactic, and, and I think that was it too, or it may have been too, they hoped that the bomb would, would go off and, and make people run out the door so they could shoot them. Mm-hmm. Um, but to see, but the thing is, anytime you start putting explosives into this, that's a favorite tactic of terrorist groups like ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call them, yep. Al-Qaeda. You have the initial bomb, people show up, then they have the follow-on attacks. We've seen those at the embassies, Nairobi, Kenya, places like that. So yeah, just, you know, and just think about the sheer impact. Uh, you had 14 people killed, a uh, massive crime scene, 27 wounded. Um, and they had good coordination too with the FBI, uh, with all of their federal partners, mm-hmm. with their state and local partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, the fact that they got them and stopped them as soon as they did, considering the way they were dressed, right. considering the things that they did. Um, again, this is us saluting you, Eric. And you see these things he's doing now, you know, they're trying to do, uh, he's got a good business going, doing background checks, making things better, making sure we hire the right kind of people. That's always important in this profession of ours. We call law enforcement. So again, us saluting you. I don't know why I salute, nobody can see me doing this, but I'm doing it just out of habit. I'm saluting that out of it. Right. But Hey, this, again, this is us saluting you. And guys, as the follow on to our nine 11 episode with Rick Prado, I mean, these were serious discussions we wanted to have with you folks. Just, you know, we have fun in a lot of the others. Some of these are fun. Uh, Kevin Holtry was fun in some ways. It was gut wrenching in others when yeah. you hear about what he went through. Yeah. Um, but, but these, these, I think are things we need to keep in mind as we talk about safety and security, uh, and who are the good men and women out there. Um, as they say, people sleep peacefully in their bed at nights because rough men and now women stand ready to do violence on their behalf. If you're a sheepdog, you got to be ready to do violence. Unfortunately, it's that's the way it is. But we salute those folks that are out there on the front lines doing it. And by listening to Game of Crimes, if you're a sheep, at least you're learning what some of the threats are and what the sheepdogs are willing to do to protect us all. So thank you so much for joining us here on Game of Crimes. We love everything we do. We love the fact that you give us this opportunity. Yeah. So guys, so thanks again. So, you know, make sure, um, you know, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, uh, head on over to game of crimes, podcast.com for more information about the show. Um, also follow us on social media at game of crimes on Twitter, game of crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, but also go to Patreon, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Uh, just, you know, uh, support us however you see fit, but we got a lot of good content there. And also make sure you join our fans page, Game of Crimes uh, fans. Type that into Facebook. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, uh, the uh, Iron Fist with the Velvet Glove, will allow you inside. And that's where we'll have the fun. These episodes aren't designed to be fun. They're funny in some areas, but um, but we have fun in a lot of that. So we want to thank you guys again, as always, once again, for playing, as you saw in this episode too, the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the... Game of Crimes.